And once again, good morning. And happy Resurrection Sunday. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Very familiar passage of Scripture, especially as we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guard shook for fear and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee, there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. As I was uh, preparing for this message uh, on Saturday, I uh, read over the gospel several times just to really kind of meditate on the events of that Sunday morning. And uh, I started thinking about the many messages I have heard over the years on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through all of it, so much of the emphasis, and listen, rightly so, don't misunderstand, but so much of the emphasis has been on what Jesus did for us when he died and rose again. How that by his death and resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins. We have a promise of purpose and power and victory here on the earth, and then a place reserved for us in heaven someday. And of course, that really is at the heart of why we celebrate the resurrection, because of what Jesus did for us. However, this morning I'd like to focus on what our response should be to the news of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from the dead. And with that in mind, I'd like to give you four responses to the resurrection that should characterize every Christian's life. These are really built around four imperatives. The New Testament was written in Greek, as you know. An imperative in the Greek is a command. So these are four commands that the angel gave to the women who were the first ones at the tomb that day. And uh, these imperatives or these commands are as important and as relevant today as they were on that first resurrection Sunday morning. So let me read verses 6 and 7 again. The angel said to the ladies, He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. The four imperatives in the Greek are come, see, go, and tell. The first imperative is come. Of course, this is where salvation always begins. I don't know if these ladies were truly saved yet, or if they were just followers of Christ. Certainly they believed he was Messiah. They really realized he was the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Maybe, maybe not. But uh, this is where salvation always begins. Even before we do anything for the Lord, we must first come to the realization that He is Lord, that He's God. How do we do that? I think through the resurrection is one of the most powerful ways. In other words, we need to come to realize, and many don't know this, many think Jesus Christ was a wonderful teacher, 
sent from God to teach us truth or to be a moral example for us to follow. But they stopped short of calling him the Son of God. And yet, we know from Scripture that he wasn't just a great teacher sent from God to teach us spiritual truth. He wasn't his God in human form, and he proved it. He proved his divinity by, by uh, rising from the dead. Remember what he said. He said, uh, no man takes my life from me. I give it freely for the sheep. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Only God can take his life. Only God has the power over life and death. Jesus Christ was there telling us that he is divine because only God has the power to raise the dead, which Jesus said he was going to raise himself from the dead after he laid it down on that Friday. But Paul the Apostle echoed this in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. You don't have to turn there because he tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power. Listen according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is telling us, as I just said, that Jesus, his divinity, the fact that he is God in human form was proved when he went to the cross and died, and three days later, he raised himself, he came back to life. Now, there's a lot of reasons why people don't come. The angel said, come to the ladies, right? Come. A lot of reasons why people don't come to examine the evidence concerning the risen Christ. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, uh, why didn't the ladies want to come? I mean, they, they hesitated. That's why the angel gave them, um, gave them a command. Come! Why were they hesitating? They had come to the tomb to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. What was hindering them? Well, and Matthew makes it sound like they were standing there when the earthquake happened and the angel rolled the stone away and the guards fainted straight away. The other Gospels tell us, no, 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 that happened just before the ladies got there. But the angel was there. They saw the stone had been rolled away. And the angel appeared to them as they're trying to peek into the tomb. You know, it's still dark out, really. And uh, he said, why are you seeking the living among the dead? The angel said to them. He is not here, he is risen, Right. And maybe the ladies were a little hesitant to go inside because this was holy ground. This was holy ground. And so they were a little hesitant. Now they finally did obey because in the Jewish mind they knew this was an angel. Angels are messengers from God. So when the angel said, come, it was God talking to them. God was saying, look, come. And they went inside the tomb and verified that the tomb was empty. Jesus had risen. Now look. When it comes to salvation, God doesn't command us to be saved. He invites us to come. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, laden, weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, I am, I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. God, can't, God won't force you to come to Christ and be saved. I mean, he invites he invites. And yet many people don't accept the invitation. Uh, why? Well, like the women, they're hesitant. Maybe they're fearful. I was telling first service that in a lot of cultures, uh, it's a crime to be a Christian. 
they hesitate to examine the claims of the risen Christ because they know the implications if it's proved to their hearts that this is genuine and Christ did rise from the dead and proved he was God incarnate, come to save us from our sins. Well, they're going to be compelled to want to act on that evidence. And in a Muslim country, if you convert to Christianity, you're to be killed. In a communist country, at very least you're imprisoned and probably killed. In a Jewish family, Orthodox Jewish family, if one of the children converts to Christianity, they throw a funeral for that child and consider them dead, cut off from the family. In a Muslim home, if a Muslim converts to Christianity, well, that's an honor-bound thing. They're honor-bound to kill that member of the family as a way to honor Allah. It's a lot of things that keep people from coming to Christ. In our country, thank God, we don't have that kind of persecution. And yet, there's still a lot of things that keep people from coming to Christ. A lot of it's peer pressure, um, you know. A lot of it is that, you know, to become a Christian among my peers, I'm going to commit social suicide. Nobody's going to want to hang out with me anymore. You used to make fun of those people, and now I'm a Christian. Come on, no, my friends will leave me. Uh, and they won't understand, or so on and so forth. There's a lot of reasons why people don't come to Christ. But let me just say this to you, okay? Everything that God wants to do for you, everything that God wants to give to you, all starts with you coming and at very least checking out the claims of Christ. All right? At very least checking out the claims of Christ. Have you even, you've come to church, praise God, but you now have to come to Christ. So I thought that was the same thing. No. A lot of folks come to church. They're not all Christians. They may think they are, but they come to church and then leave, and honestly, all week long, they're doing what they want to do, and it's not always a pretty thing. When you are a true Christian, you have a relationship with Christ. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He changes you from the inside out. So let me just ask you again, have you come, you've come to church, praise God, have you come to Christ yet? Have you given him your life? Have you said, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I, I know I've blown it. But I want to come to you. I want to receive you. I want you to take over my life. Have you done that? The second imperative is see. The angel said, come and see the place where he lay. Verse 6. Many today don't see the evidence surrounding the resurrection of Christ because, listen to me, they refuse to see. Now, when the ladies finally ran to tell the apostles the good news that Christ was risen, we pick the story up in Luke 24, verses 10 and 11. And it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed like idle tales, and they did not believe them. At first, the majority of the apostles, upon hearing of the resurrection, simply decided it was ludicrous, ridiculous. It was just foolish, and they refused to believe uh, what had happened uh, without even checking out the evidence. They, they could have ran to the open, the, uh, open tomb. They could have ch checked it to see if... Jesus' body was still there. But they just refused to believe without 
even looking at the evidence. So a lot of people like this, okay? They just believe that Christianity can't be true. I was telling uh, you guys one time about Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson um, didn't believe in the supernatural. Uh, he, he liked to read the Bible, the Gospels in particular, but he rejected all the miracles. So what he wound up doing was editing the New Testament. Can you imagine that? He edited the New Testament, took out all the miracles and the supernatural, and just left it in the moral teachings. It's called the Jefferson Bible. Do you know how his account, his Bible ends in Mark's Gospel? And they laid Jesus in the tomb and rolled a stone in front of the opening. End of story. You left out some pretty important stuff there, Tom. But that's the problem with unbelief, isn't it? People put it in their heads, I'm not going to believe because it can't be true. But there's evidence out there that they refuse to look at, or even maybe even know about. Over the years, I've collected some of these little things from uh, authors and things that quoted certain people. And I got three here from trial lawyers, all right? They can get saved. Anyone can get saved, all right? I'm, a, I'm sorry if you're an attorney here this morning. Just kidding around. But, you know... If a lawyer can get saved, there's hope for every one of us, all right? But these were all critics of Christianity. I'll give you the first one. Years ago, an English trial lawyer and critic of Christianity named Frank Morrison started out to write a book disproving the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But after careful study, he was compelled by the evidence to become a Christian. He wound up writing a book in defense of the resurrection entitled, Who Moved the Stone? Well, think about it. Who did move that stone? The disciples didn't move it. They were hiding out, scared that the Romans were coming after them next to crucify them. The Romans didn't move the stone. They sealed it in the tomb there. So who moved the stone? The Bible says an angel moved the stone. An angel moved the stone. In fact, the Greek word is iro. doesn't mean just rolled it back up the channel. Anybody could have done that. It means to pick it up and carry it and put it somewhere away from the tomb. Which is why the disciples, when they got to the scene, when, James and, uh, when Peter and John finally got to the, uh, the uh, tomb, they noticed, uh, the Greek is that they were perplexed. Yeah, because who moved that stone? Didn't just roll it up the channel like anyone, would, if it was a person, would have done, or people. It was a heavy stone, 4,000 pounds. It was picked up and moved and put somewhere away from the tomb. That was a powerful, like, what happened? Who did that? We spoke of something miraculous having taken place. The Guinness Book's record holder for most successful trial, trial lawyer, Sir Lionel Lucku, examined the evidence of Christ's resurrection and wound up giving his life to Jesus Christ. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, the famous 19th century professor of law at Harvard University, was a very verbal skeptic of Christianity. He had written a set of books called The Laws of Legal Evidence and was challenged by his students to apply those laws to the resurrection of Christ. He accepted the challenge, and in the process, he became a Christian. His conclusion was, and I'm quoting him now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the best established events of history according to the laws of legal evidence administered in courts of justice. He went on to say, all that Christianity asks, 
asks of men is that they would treat its evidence, its evidence, as they treat the evidence of any other thing in a court of law. So guys, the evidence is there. And people a lot smarter than any of us in this room, no doubt, have checked it out, trained people who deal with evidence, and have concluded it's the most, it's the most well-attested to fact, historical fact. You know, it's amazing how much evidence there is. It's the same evidence everyone can examine. But let me just say this to you. Even evidence, even facts won't force a person to believe in Jesus Christ. They can explain away the facts. I've, had people, I've, I've heard people explain away the obvious. It's amazing how they can spin it. Even evidence won't force a person to believe in Jesus Christ. It takes the heart and faith of a child. You can be, I don't care whether you're 5 or 85. You can be 85 years old and still have the faith of a child. And that's what you're going to need to receive. Yeah, the evidence is there, but again... You, you can dismiss it. You have to have an open heart, a willing heart, like a child. It's amazing how many kids believe when professors are stumped. Let me read you something. True story. And I thought it kind of went along with what we're talking about. Let me read it to you. The author said, Once upon a time, I had a young friend named Philip. Philip was, I like the story already. Philip was born with Down syndrome. He was a pleasant child, happy it seemed, but increasingly aware of the difference between himself and the other children. Philip went to Sunday school at the Methodist Church down the road. His teacher, also a friend of mine, taught the third grade class with Philip and nine other eight-year-old boys and girls. You know eight-year-olds, and Philip, with his differences, was not readily accepted. But my fr teacher friend was creative, and he purposed to help this group to grow together and become a unit, uh, people that, you know, little ones that cared about each other. Well, they learned, they laughed, they played together, and they really cared about one another. Even though eight-year-olds don't say that they care about one another out loud, my teacher friend could see it. He knew it. He also knew that Philip was not really a part of that group. Philip did not choose, nor did he want to be different. He just was, and that was just the way things were. My friend had a marvelous idea for his class the Sunday after Easter last year. You know those things that pantyhose come in, the containers that look like great big eggs? They still make those? Okay, well, story goes back a few years. My friend had collected 10 of them. The children loved it when he brought them into the room. Each child was to get one. It was a beautiful spring day, and the assignment was for each child to go outside and find a symbol for new life, put it into the egg, bring it back to the classroom. They would then open and share their new life symbols and surprises uh, one by one. It was, a, it, it was glorious, he said. It was confusing. It was wild. Uh, the kids ran around the church grounds gathering their symbols and returned to the classroom. They put all the eggs on a table, and then the teacher began to open them. All the children stood around the table. He opened one. There was a, little, there was a flower, and they all oohed and odd. Another, uh, he opened another, and there was a little butterfly. Beautiful, the girls all said. It's hard for eight-year-old boys to say beautiful. He opened another, and there was a rock. And as third graders will, some laughed. Some said, that's crazy. How's a rock supposed to be like new life? 
But the smart little boy who'd found it spoke up, that's mine. And I knew all you were going to get flowers and buds and leaves and butterflies and stuff like that. So I got a rock because I wanted to be different. And for me, that's a symbol of new life. They all laughed. My teacher friend said something about, to himself about the profundity of eight-year-olds and opened the next one. There was nothing there. The other children, as eight-year-olds will, said, that's not fair. That's stupid. Somebody didn't do right. Then the teacher, my teacher friend, felt a tug on his shirt, and he looked down. Philip was standing beside him. It's mine, Philip said. It's mine. And the children said, you don't ever do things right, Philip. There's nothing there. I did so do it, Philip said. I did do it. It's empty. The tomb is empty. There was silence, a very full silence. And for you people who don't believe in miracles, I want to tell you that one happened that day last spring. From that time on, it was different. Philip suddenly became a part of that group of eight-year-old children. They took him in. He was set free from the tomb of his differentness. The author went on. Philip died last summer. His family had known since the time he was born that he wouldn't live out a full lifespan. Many other things had been wrong with his tiny body, and so late last July, with an infection that most normal children would have quickly shrugged off, Philip died. At the funeral, nine eight-year-olds, nine eight-year-old ch children marched up to the altar, not with flowers to cover over the stark reality of death. Nine eight-year-olds, with their Sunday school teacher by their side, marched right up to the altar and laid on it an empty ache, an empty, old, discarded pantyhose ache. You know, why is it that the resurrection can be grasped and believed by children, even by a child with Down syndrome like Philip, and yet some of the greatest minds in history can't, comp can't comprehend the reality of it? It's because they refuse to see. They refuse to see. The third of the angel's imperatives was then go. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go. Guys, this is a strong reminder, I think, that however tempting it may be to remain near the tomb, the place where angels are hanging out, where miracles have taken place, and kind of bask in the glow of being on holy ground, as tempting as that might be, the fact remains that there is work to be done, and we need to go and get on with it. Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. And notice the sense of urgency in the angel's command. Go quickly. I think this is a real problem for the church of Jesus Christ in America today. So many have lacked, so many lack, they, uh, so many totally lack any urgency to reach this role for Christ. You know, I think of Peter. Not to pick on Peter. I love Peter. But remember when Peter, James, and John were up on the Mount of Transfiguration with the Lord and he began to radiate like the sun? And then Moses and Elijah appeared, started talking to the Lord, and Peter was so overwhelmed with what he was experiencing. He blurted out to the Lord, Lord, it's so good for us to be here. Can, can, I, you know, can we make some booths? A booth was a temporary dwelling place. In other words, you know, can we, can we camp out here? Can we just stay up here, Lord? Now, of course, 
We'd all love to stay on the mountaintop, right? Whatever that means in your life as far as you come into church and maybe you've had a mountaintop experience. Maybe, uh, you know, you, you, today was the day you received Christ as your Lord and Savior or, or you got healed or some other miracle happened. And there's a lot of folks that want to just stay in church. It's holy ground. It brings back memories, memories of God working and how they first met Christ and the joy and the peace that they had. And they want to just hang out in church. And you know what? Many churches have accommodated that mindset. The church was never to be a place where we just hang out and stay. It was never to be an end in itself, but only a means to an end. And the means was you come to church, right? You're out there serving the Lord. You're getting beat up by the world, by the devil. You come to church. Hang out with each other, get your batteries recharged, get into the presence of God through the worship, hear a message that feeds your spirit, you recharge, you re-energize, you go back out into the world and keep working for the Lord. No, not today. Today we have churches that, it's, it, 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 the church is the end. Not a means to one, it is the end. You never have to leave. I'm surprised people haven't built booths and just hung out there 24-7. You come to church, you can, you can, you know, they have great concerts and they have movies and plays and a food court and co- you come for coffee and stay all day in fellowship with Christians. None of that is evil in and of itself, but it's a major distraction. We, we have been commanded not to just hang out in church, but to go, to go. This is so important that we don't, you know, miss it in fact one of the last things the lord jesus christ said uh, commanded his church before ascending back to his father turn to matthew 28 you all know it but let me know it but let me read it to you it's one of the last things the lord commanded his church matthew 28 verse 19 he said go therefore and make Now, he's already risen from the dead by this point. He's about ready to ascend back to his father. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark records the words of Jesus this way. Mark 16, 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every what? creature now first service i changed it to people because you know i mean that, that's really the input the uh the, what being said and that, that go to the bears and the t- tigers and the dogs no obviously not i mean so somebody come up and correct me said you know you didn't really quote the verse right it was not going to it was it was going to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature all right here here's why jesus put it that way because the jews looked at gentiles as non entities creatures not people they were only created to fuel the fires of hell the rabbi said so by saying go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature he was including the gentiles into that all right salvation wasn't just for the jews it was for all the people that god has created but let me just say this to you the greatest work and and, you know the greatest work that any person can be involved in is the work of saving an eternal soul. Think about that. That is the privilege God has given us as Christians, 
That is what he's called us all to do. There is no greater work any person can be involved in than in the work of saving an eternal soul. But let me say this to you. It's not going to happen, I don't think. Uh, many Christians will not do it consistently and passionately until they first come to see everything in this world having a red flag, red tag, I should say, or a green tag attached to it. What are you talking about? Imagine that everywhere you look in this world, all the things that are going to perish, that are not eternal, all the material things, your bank account, your you know, prized possession, that classic car you own, or whatever it might be, all of those have red tags. They're all going to burn. They're not, going to, they're not eternal. Now, imagine every person you see has a green tag attached to them. That green tag represents the fact that they are going to live for eternity in one of two places. And then ask yourself, what is getting most priority in your life? The red tag items or the green tag people? And I tell you what, it can be a real eye-opening experience when you honestly evaluate the focus of your life. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person because they're eternal. And that gets into the last of the angel's imperatives, which is tell. He is not here, the angel said, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. This imperative, guys, this command was right to come last, for as one author said, if we have come to the tomb, have seen that it is empty, know that Jesus was raised, and then obey Jesus by going into the world, clearly we must speak what we know. I hope you realize that the salvation of the lost has been a passion of the heart of God ever since man first fell in the garden. From the time that God called the first man back to him in Genesis 3 verse 9 to his final invitation to lost mankind in Revelation 22 verse 17, come let, and let everyone who is thirsty drink of the water of life freely. He has been about the work of saving the lost. This was the heart of Jesus and the reason that he came down from heaven to the earth, became one of us. He said it in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those which are lost. We see the heart of God for the lost being constantly affirmed in the pages of the New Testament. I'll read you three quickly. Second uh, Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing, listen, that any should perish in hell, but that all should come to repentance and spend eternity with him in heaven. 1 Timothy 2.4 God our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, desires all people, all men, all women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And of course, the verse we studied last Sunday, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not 
perish in hell, but would have everlasting life. This was the heart of our Savior. This is why he came to the earth. Again, to seek and to save those that are lost. And we see Jesus passing the baton of this all-important ministry to us as his church. At the end of Matthew's gospel, when he said, now I'll paraphrase, in light of all that you have seen and heard, now go and make disciples. Guys, there's only one reason the Lord allows his church to remain on the earth. To fulfill its mission, which is to go into all the world proclaiming the good news of salvation to every person. However, the church in America, for the most part, has lost sight of this, choosing rather to focus on everything else, it seems, except the main thing. One pastor put it this way on this subject. He said, and I quote, This central message of Scripture pertains to the central mission of the the people of God, a mission that tragically many Christians do not understand or are unwilling to fulfill. It seems obvious that some Christians think little about their mission in this world except in regard to their own personal needs. They attend services and meetings when it is convenient, take what they feel like taking, and have little concern for anything else. They are involved in the church only to the extent that it serves their own desires. It escapes both their understanding and their concern that the Lord has given his church a supreme mission and that he calls every believer to be an instrument in fulfilling that mission, end quote. Now listen, I know it's scary to think about going out and sharing Jesus. Sure, it's scary. You don't think those disciples were somewhat terrified? Remember, these are blue-collar guys, all right? They had not been educated. They were not educated. I'm not saying they were stupid guys. They just weren't educated. They hadn't gone to university or... Uh, Pharisees looked down on them because they were not, didn't have their, uh, you know, Bible college degree or seminary degree. And Jesus is telling these group of fishermen, farmers, blue collar guys, look, I want you to go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. And I'm sure they're thinking, what? You want us to go to Rome, to Alexandria, to, uh, you know, all these places of high culture and learning? Who's going to listen to us, Lord? How in the world are we going to do that? And of course, he told them before he went to the cross, you're not going to go in your power, your strength. When I go back to the Father, when I die and I'm going to eventually ascend back to the Father, I'm going to pray to the Father, he's going to send you another helper, the Holy Spirit, he'll abide with you forever. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive power to be my witnesses. I'm not going to send you out into this world in your own strength. You're not going to be able to do anything in your own strength. You wait for the power that I'm promising you and then go out into the world and preach the good news. Well, you have to understand that after he rose from the dead at the end of Luke's gospel, we see that now Jesus is about ready to ascend back to the Father. He tells these men, look, go back to Jerusalem and wait there until you're endued with power from on high. Now, folks, They had the knowledge. They had spent three and a half years with Jesus. He preached the gospel thousands of times. I'm sure they could have recited the gospel in their sleep. And yet they weren't ready to go out and preach. Why do we think today, or 
there's a lot of people who think the only thing you need, a person needs to be qualified to be a pastor, missionary, or whatever, is just to have that degree. That's sheepskin. And, and, and that's what they, I've heard them openly say that. That you are not qualified to be a pastor or a, a preacher unless you have that degree. Well, these guys didn't have degrees. And Jesus taught them firsthand. But told them, even though you have the information, which is important, you're not ready to preach it. So go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise I told you about in the upper room. Promise of my Father, the Holy Spirit. You wait there. And they did. Ten days later, and Jesus, of course, rose from the dead. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit came upon them and baptized them in the Spirit. And they went out in power and and the Bible says turned their world upside down because they had gone in the power of the Spirit. Let me just say this, guys. Why is the church so powerless today? Why is the church of Jesus Christ so powerless when he promised us power? He provided that power. Why are we not see, why are we losing the culture war? Why is this generation of young people the least churched generation in American history? What's going on? Because you can't reach, you can't do the work of, you can't serve an omnipotent God with impotent lives. And I'm just going to say it. The church is impotent for the most part. Oh, there are churches that are on fire, spirit-filled, many Christians. But if you take the church of Jesus Christ, all those who profess to be Christians across this country, you would realize how there's no power. There's no power. Christians who profess to be Christians, there's, there's no power that's transformed their lives. They're still doing all the things they used to do before they got saved, but now they're coming to church as if that really matters. What is the, what is the power? What's the, what's the reason? Let me just, again, quickly, we, we talked about it Friday, not close. Remember that crucifixion Friday preceded Resurrection Sunday. Now, think about that. It's pretty basic, pretty simple, right? Crucifixion Friday preceded Resurrection Sunday. Jesus died on Friday, or I think it was Thursday, but it's another message. Uh, he died on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead in power. Let me say this to you. Here's the lesson for all of us. We are supposed to follow in his footsteps. Until we first die to self, take up our cross, die to our desires, our goals, our selfish deals, until we die, we're never going to live in resurrection power. Got to die to self. This is the problem, and it goes right along with Paul, with what Paul the Apostle prophesied was going to happen in the last days. That people would come to church, but they wouldn't want to hear sound teaching from the Bible. They would want to gather to themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and tell them what they wanted to hear. How can I be wealthy? How can I have a, the biggest house in, the, in town or the nicest cars or the most prosperous business? This is why many people flock to church today. It's not about taking up the cross, dying to self, following Jesus and reaching this world for him. No, it's all about what's, what is God going to do for me? That's the problem. That's why there's no power. 
There's so much me in the church today. And if by God's grace, we can crucify the flesh daily, we will begin to rise up in resurrection power. You will see it in your life. When you turn your life over to him, I'm not talking about once in a while. Jesus said, you know, if you want to come after me, you've got to deny, you got to, uh, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow me. When you begin to get serious about that, when the church of Christ across this country begins to get serious about that, that I can't walk in power, I can't ever know the power of the Spirit if I'm going to live a life of the flesh. I've got to die to self, and when I do, then God will pour His Spirit on me, and I will rise up in His power and be more than a conqueror. I will impact this world for His glory, and so on. Crucifixion Friday always precedes Resurrection Sunday. And may God give us the grace. He wants us to go and tell. Share the gospel. We need the power. We, we got the information. You guys know the gospel. Cold. But we need the power. May God give us that power. Pray for it. Covet it. And trust he will give it because he wants you out there witnessing. And he himself said you can't do it unless you have the power of the Holy Spirit. May God give us grace to fall on our faces and say, Lord, I want to go. I want to speak, but I need the power. I don't, it's not in me. Bring your heart to the Lord like that and he'll answer that prayer and he will give you the power you need to be a witness for him. Father, we thank you for what this day means to us as believers. I know that, Lord, for a Christian, really, the resurrection is not one day on a calendar. It's an everyday way of life. We understand that. But thank you. As we have set aside one day to really focus on the truth of the resurrection and uh, the implications for our lives, not just for eternity, but right here on the earth. We thank you, Lord. Father, we ask that you would take us this morning and so work within us, Lord, that we have a heart, a passion, to say, Lord, I'm tired of living my selfish life. Please, Lord, by your grace, I want to die to self. I want to know the power, as Paul said. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection, Lord. I want that to be my prayer. And Lord, we pray that you would use us in these last days in ways that we never thought possible. We just thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.